We're gonna uh, we're gonna spend some time. On, I I haven't had a real question and answer session with you guys, so I have some things I want to share. And I thought we'd just do some question and answers, and I and I maybe have some prophecies for a few people. So we'll see. I said we'll see. So grab a hand. It's your favorite time of the school. I'm going slowly for you intentionally. So Lord, we just we pray for you to move powerfully among us in Jesus' name. Amen. So I'm going to give you, I'm going to talk for about 10, 15 minutes, and that'll give you some time to think about questions you might want to ask about either what I'm talking about right now, which will just be, I, I'm thinking short. And um, I just, you know, I try to get away from questions and answers because we did so many over the past years, and and I think that sometimes they're they're not thought well of. But I haven't actually done a question and answer session with you guys, so I thought maybe you have some things you want to talk about, and I'd like to interact with you some, so... Um, I had a really good session today with third-year students. Where some, uh, I think there's some third-year interns in here. Right? Come on, it was quite fun actually. But uh, I was just, I was talking about, um, I was actually talking about the fact that if you want a good ministry and if you want a good marriage, you do what you, do. you do, you do when you're not passionate. What you do when you're passionate. So if you want a good marriage, then you. You, you think about the most passionate day you have with your spouse, and you act that way when you're not. And I was just thinking about, and I, I was sharing this uh, with them. I was thinking about, you know, a lot of things, a lot of people do extraordinary, extraordinary, no. There are some people who do extraordinary things in life, but very few people do extraordinary, do, do start over. I have it in my brain, it will come out. There's a lot of people. There are some people who do extraordinary things in life, but there's very few people that do ordinary things in an extraordinary way. And I think that God promotes you to do something extraordinary when you do the ordinary in a way no one's ever seen before. And I think it kind of goes along with some of what Bill was sharing today. And I think that um, there are a lot of people. You know, uh, extraordinary things do not mark our life. And I have, I was sharing with the students today, God bless you, be free. <laughs> Go your way and send no more. That had nothing to do with you, I was just being funny. Um, I was sharing with our students this morning, that I have sat in many marriage counseling sessions with people and the one I'm thinking of right now, I'm thinking of one in particular, but I, this has repeated itself, was a guy, a guy and a gal, husband and wife. The wife is, you know, wants a divorce. But, but this is kind of typical. The guy is expressing to her the things he's done in his life for her. Like, oh, I took you to Paris. I took you to this place. I took you to that place. How many of you know five trips to Paris won't solve a lifestyle of you won't pick up your socks when I ask. I'm saying you, can li- you can't live on the extraordinary. You have to do the ordinary in an extraordinary way if you want an extraordinary marriage, you want an extraordinary relationship. And what I'm getting at is this, is that some, you know, doing the everyday stuff in a way that's 
passionate and consistent is much more important than I took you kids to Disneyland, but I treated you like crap for every six months. I took you to, I took you someplace to fix it. No, I'm ta- I'm saying one Disneyland trip, ten Disneyland trips are not going to fix bad parenting, and three trips to Paris aren't going to fix a bad marriage. That's a good word. And what I'm getting at is that consistent, being consistent when you don't feel like it, is a good marriage, is a good ministry, is a good relationship, is how you get famous in God. Whether anybody ever notices you or not, you know, whatever. God could put you on, He can put you on the big stage, or you can be famous in your prayer closet in heaven. But I'm saying you get famous by doing ordinary things in extraordinary ways, and I'm sure that you get no chance to do something extraordinary until you've done the ordinary in an extraordinary way. So when people ask, like, how have you had a good marriage for 40 years? Well, most of the time, and I would say almost all the time for Kathy, she does ordinary things in an extraordinary way every day, day in and day out, no matter how you feel. And if you will do what you do on days you feel great, on days you don't, that's how you build consistency in a ministry. That's how you do it right there. And I know that doesn't sound deep, but if you do that, it probably makes more difference than almost anything you've learned this year from me in my life. That you just do every day what you do when you're passionate. We you just do it when you're not. Because anybody can do something extraordinary when the opportunity is there. But you don't get the opportunity unless you kill the lion and the bear when nobody cares. And, I, you know, there's a term, it's most it's used in sports, it's, I've heard it mostly used in basketball, so maybe it's used in some sports that I don't watch. But they say in basketball, that they will often say, that team plays up to its opponent. Which means that when the opponent's tough, they play harder, but when the opponent's not tough, they play down. I think that's a great way to not be a champion. Like I don't play to the level of my opponent. I play to the level of my identity. I, I play to my ability, not to my opponent's ability. I, I do. I, 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 I love to the level of my ability, not to the level of what it takes to stay in this relationship. And I'll finish with this, and I, uh, this had more context, and because I, I want to give you lots of time to ask questions, and we'll have an hour and five minutes or so. Um, and if we don't use all that time, I have more things to say. But I, I, I have very much struggled, as you know, because you've been here three, three, two years now. I was talking to third-year students a few minutes ago, a little while ago. Um, I very much struggle with the grace message, the way it's being taught in the last several years. I very much... I very much, I don't, you know, the teaching part, you know how we are about teaching. Like, Keshara, you know, that guy believes one thing, we believe another. I don't have any problem having a relationship with somebody who disagrees. You know that. I'm talking about the message. I have very much, I have a, a very huge problem with it for a number of reasons. And the more I think about it, the more it bothers me. Because, one, it makes me feel powerless that I can do anything to actually find more favor with God. And I understand that favor with God is like, on one side, it's like, I can't work for favor with God. I get that. 
On the other side, it makes me feel like there's nothing I can do that would actually please God. And I just don't think that's true. And I think the Bible is full of things like Jesus telling parables about a guy who did nothing and a guy who did more and a guy who did a bunch. And what I'm getting at is that it feels like people who get promoted or people, or and I'm talking about promoted, I'm not necessarily talking about making a lot of money or being on the big screen. I'm talking about favor with God, which may equal some other stuff that you're interested in. But right now, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about favor with God. Like I, 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 It feels to me like there's nothing I can do to gain favor, more favor with God, but Jesus actually gained favor with God, and he, it says he learned from the things... He learned obedience to the things he suffered, and he, get, and he grew in favor with God and man. And I'm saying, the idea that I'm sitting here and you're sitting here, and God randomly, like, like a lottery, goes, whoop, I'll take her. Oh, I'll take him. And here's the five people I'm going to promote in here, and it feels like it just was the lottery. It's like, oh, you draw the lucky draw, and you, you became amazing. I'm sorry I don't feel like that's true. First of all, let me say this. In life that I've been around a little while, I can tell you that isn't true. And secondly, if you're sitting there feeling like there's, I have, there's nothing I can do to actually grow in favor with God and man. I just don't think that's true. I don't think the Bible actually teaches that at all. In fact, when we get to heaven, we're going to go through a fire, right? And whatever's left, we're going to get a reward, a reward for. Which means you're going to get a reward. A reward for something you did, not an award, a reward, right? I'm saying the whole, I mean, heaven is going to give you a reward for the things you did. The story about the talents and the story about the um, the, the um, Midas are, are both stories about people who got something from the master and did something with it. Well done, good and faithful servant. <laughs> the guy who didn't do anything ended up, I don't know if it's a metaphor or however, but he ends up in hell, right? Where there shall be weeping and gnashing, I'm just saying, wherever weeping and gnashing of teeth is, that's where the guy ends up because he didn't do anything with what he had. So I struggle with the idea. It's like, I'm just like, I'm in this like random lottery and Jesus just chooses somebody, whoo, out of the crowd, anyone. And it's all about, you know, and grace becomes, instead of grace being, not just being undeserved favor, but instead of grace being, the operational power of God, it, and it being like grace giving me the ability to do something I couldn't do before, it just it just becomes a, a random like God loves everyone the same and favors everyone the same and King Baya and it's all and that feels like Buddhism. It doesn't feel like Jesus at all. I'm just trying to be real with you. It's like that's not doesn't feel like light, real life to me. And not only that, but on top of that, it feels very powerless. Like, what? I just sit in my prayer closet and wait. It's like, like, you happen to be there at the right time. You'll be the girl. And I'm like, I'm sorry, I just don't think that's true. I look throughout the Bible and I see people who are faithful doing, faithful doing. I'm not saying they're, I know for sure they're not doing it for love, but they're definitely in love doing something. And I can tell you, like, if you say, I've I've never known anybody who had a great marriage who didn't do something. And I can tell you I've been involved in lots of marriages with people 
where they didn't do something and they told each other how much in love they were with each other in my office while they're headed toward the divorce court. I have always loved you. It doesn't feel like it. And then they begin to defend themselves of what they did and what they didn't do. And I'm like, you know, like, like a life with Jesus has actions. If that makes you feel powerless, it's because you're not doing anything. That's why you're the guy who doesn't like this message. But everyone else feels more powerful. It's like, give and it shall be given to you. You know, some people don't like that message. I think that's the most powerful message in the world. I'm not sitting there waiting for God to give something to me. Like, that feels powerless. It's like, okay, here, Chris, I'll give you something now. It's like, all right, now, do something back. It's like, no, you get to start it. I don't know, maybe people are dip wire different than me. I, I, I feel so much like, I feel so good that I actually get to begin the process. Give and it shall be given to you. To the measure you give, it shall be given back to you. And we talked about it the other day. I'm so, this, it, and, and I understand, I think that passage is maybe around money, but I'm actually not talking about money at all today. I'm saying I actually get to determine how much and when I get reciprocity back. And I actually get to determine what I actually get. So if I sow, just this last week we talked about the ecosystem. If I sow money, I get money back. If I sow friendship, I get friendship back. If I sow favor, I get favor back. And what I'm getting at is like, I actually, I'm actually, I'm not the most powerful person in my life. I understand that. And I'm not trying to propose that. I'm saying, but I am a very powerful person in my life. I'm not a powerless victim. And, and I guess the idea, I understand that there are good, bad things happen to good people. I get that too. I understand like you can do all good stuff and, and something bad happens. And we see those things. And so, you know, and I'm like, yes, those are, that does happen. And, and, it, and it is part of life. And ultimately in, in eternity, it all works out. In eternity, God works it out. I don't know how it works out, but in eternity, it all works out. So it doesn't seem fair on this side of, of death on this side of the veil. But on that side of the veil, it all makes sense. I, I think he, uh, Solomon said it best in Ecclesiastes chapter, I think it's three, he said, God has put eternity in our hearts without which no one can know the works that God does from the beginning to the end. So I understand that we have to kind of get on the other side of the veil and look. On the other side of the veil, it all makes total sense. On this side of the veil, it mostly makes sense. <laughs> Sometimes it doesn't. But your your responsibility is to live as if it all makes sense someplace. Okay, so maybe I stirred you up enough to have something to say. So, and I think we'll run, can we run a mic, a mic or two around? Do we have one or two? Is anybody with me? Oh, cool. We got two mics? Ness. Good. So how do you want them to do this? However, have them do lines. Okay, do lines. That's great. Do lines? You know what that means? Okay, great. Awesome. Does anyone have a question? Yes. Okay, so there's a line there and a line there. So, see how we have a girl and a guy? It's like we're just making everything equal here. Okay. Yes. Hi. Um, question would be um, how you navigated through this, maybe when you were when you were younger. Um, when you have two different, like for me, and this is about me. Yeah. So I just want to make that evident. Okay. But having 
two different like authority figures in my life and like I guess they would be like spiritual fathers and mothers uh-huh. that are definitely in their in their stream but two totally different streams yeah. and my heart goes to both of them I don't agree with there's certain things I don't agree with both of them but not losing myself in the process and in staying under that authority and not in going into things I don't understand that might be different than my than the theology my experience has created but that tension of not losing a hold of and in, in the tension of hearing God, like like me and mm-hmm. my secret place, hearing God's voice, knowing what he's saying to me, but also allowing myself to be influenced and not losing myself in the process by two different yeah. ideas. Some of that's solved um, a little bit by, you know, you're in a certain metron. Like right now, you're in our metron, right? You're in our sphere of authority. So, so you know, obviously when you're in Rome, you kind of kind of do what the Romans do. And I think the challenge is becomes when you're, when you're not here and you're and those voices are speaking into your life and i think that you're just going to you know learn and know how to process uh, you know wisdom is knowledge rightly applied so you're going to know when to apply this stream's wisdom and when to apply this stream's wisdom and i think that's just going to come from discerning in your own heart i don't think there's a formula for it and you know the truth is is that we all respect people you know, um i respect people as a father, not my father, of course, but I respect uh, people outside of our streams that are fathers, and I relate to them as a father, not as my father. And they often give me different counsels, so it's not uncommon for us to think, have to think through, like, well, do I do what he says, or do I think like they think, or do I think like they think? Mm-hmm. So I think we're all a product of several streams flowing into us, probably more than we th- even know we are. And I think most of it happens subconsciously. We're like, oh, that's amazing. And I don't even realize it, but that thing he said that I loved actually is attached to a root system that maybe some of the root system I don't even agree with, but I love that part of it. So I I think we're all kind of doing that. Okay. Yeah. As long as you, you know, yeah, doing it honorably. And, you know, I I, I think it's different. I think some of the students that are, the students that are here, especially in first year, like they're here and their pastors don't want them here and they hate Bethel. Well, I don't know what to say about that, you know. Right, That's right. pretty extreme. I'm like, and, and yet, you know, some some of you and some of our first-year students, that pastor led them to the Lord mm-hmm. and built into their life. Those are, some of, some of our students are facing those kind of issues. Those are a little bit harder yeah. because you're like, hey, my theology is totally, maybe I'll use the word totally to exaggerate. My, my theology is totally changed from what my pastor who poured into my life maybe was with me in tough times, is, believes, mm-hmm. but I can still embrace them even though I don't agree with their theology because life's more than theology. Yeah. Does that make sense? It does make sense. Yeah. Thank you. Good question. Thank you. Yes. I'm still processing this, but something that you said about um, giving so that, it, so that you can receive. Mm-hmm. And for somebody that gets can get really caught up in performance, performing for love, and really wants to understand what it means to be loved without having to do anything, how, how do you navigate, you know, having that struggle and, and still doing that? You know? Well, you know, I, I understand that when we're performing for love, that's kind of weird, but no farmer would plant seed hoping to not, or not, without expecting to receive a crop. And when Jesus returns, his reward is with him. So I, I do think that it, there's a constant balance, but but the balance doesn't it doesn't fix the balance by throwing out one truth and that is that I give and I receive, 
If I only give, so I receive. That feels kind of weird. Let me let me say, you know where I really think it works? Well, first of all, we shouldn't work for love. If I'm working for love, if I'm trying to buy someone's affection, including my children's, something else is wrong. I, I don't mean the part that I'm giving for love is probably the worst thing that's wrong. Probably the reason why I'm giving for love is probably the worst thing that's wrong. Like something's wrong. So, you know, I, 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 we all probably all know parents, and we maybe we have done this as parents. We give to our kids because we're trying to fix a relationship we had with them. And, and probably, I've watched parents do it over and over. I've probably done it several times in my life. I'm like, okay, something's wrong. This is not fixing the problem. So let's talk about what's really wrong. But the idea that I would sow without expecting to reap, that's all through the Bible. So the idea that it's evil to sow so that I could reap, that feels weird too. But the idea that I would sow into your life and expect you to give back to me, that feels like perversion. That feels like manipulation. So what I'm getting at is that if I sow into your life so that you'll give back to me, you will give back to me, that feels like manipulation. That feels like what most people are responding to or reacting to when they say you don't give to receive. I'm thinking they're thinking from other people. Are you with me? Yeah. T.D. Jake said something on, on um, I, think it, I think it might have been on his Instagram page the other day. I, I thought it was really, I think it put words to um, what I feel at times. Not much here, but on the road a lot. People give to you and oftentimes, this is what T.D. said. He said, I very seldom get a gift that doesn't have strings attached. That's what people are talking about. I heard Bill talk about, I've heard him say both things. I've heard him say, nobody sows without expecting to reap. And then I've also say, heard him say, no, you don't sow so that you will reap. And I think the context is almost always, I don't throw, sow in your life so I can get from you. But I do sow in your life knowing he's going to reward me. I'm, I'm, actually, I'm actually told... Lay up treasures in heaven. I'm actually told, give so that he will take care of me. Your father who sees in secret will reward you openly. Why am I told that if I'm not supposed to like expect that? So I, so I think the idea that my gifts have strings attached, that it should buy me time or it should buy me, you know, someone gives me $1,000, so the next time they email me, I feel like I have to email them back. The next time they invite me to their church, I feel like I, I feel obligated to go back. It's like, no, if you're sowing into me, expecting the Father to take care of you, then the Father's going to take care of you someplace. You gave to me, the Father will take care of you. But if you sow into me, expecting me to give back to you, that feels like manipulation. I don't like that. I, I've had a, a person in, a, in, a, in not too uh, past, not, not too far past. I really love them. They gave me a very large gift. I don't know what they meant by it, but after that, they expected more from me. And I feel, every time they write me, I feel really weird. Like, I almost feel like I have to do something because the gift was extraordinarily large. And I said to Kathy the other day, I wish I wouldn't have taken that gift. Like, it didn't seem to have strings attached, but it obviously does. So I think that when we give to people and we expect people to give back, I think that's manipulation. That's what I think. I think Bill agrees with me, too. <laughs> yes. Hi, Chris. Hi. Um, you've spoken about wineskins in the past, and mm-hmm. recently you covered um, ecosystems. Yes. Um, I was wondering if you could just link them to, like, explain what's the relationship between the two on a personal and corporate level, wait, perhaps some examples. Um, that's a good question. 
Um, I, I think I think wineskin like wineskin when we're talking about like Jesus and you know the, the kingdom stuff. You know, I, I think obviously wineskin is you know uh, it simply means you know the container that holds the wine. So what what actually what actually can contain contains a bad word. Well, I can't think of a better word, but this is definitely the wrong word. What can contain the presence of God? I mean, you know, no, nothing can contain the presence of God. I'm not talking about contain like there's another word, but there's. I'm not talking about contain like God's all in this box. I mean, what if we build it? What does what what helps? What makes heaven want to come? And I think that when we're talking about denominationalism as opposed to apostleships, and I think one of the things that was easy to demonstrate is like when we create a wineskin. Where we're together because we belong, we're together because we're a family, we're not together because we agree, as an example. That's a wineskin that the Lord can pour out things that make people disagree, like revelation. So if we're together because we're a family, then that creates a, a foundation in which Jesus is like, okay, I can give them revelation, and they're going to spend some time working out, and while they're working out, they're probably not going to agree. But it's not going to wreck the family. Because they're not together because they agree. I think there's different kinds of wineskins. Like I don't know if the if the word wineskin maybe works, but you know, um, I talk to I have some friends that are very wealthy, some different friends. One of the conversations that come up because lots of those those people they're around my age, so they're you know they're they're late fifties, they're early sixties, and they're thinking about passing their wealth. And when somebody is extremely wealthy. Their thoughts are, are, are around, what is this going to do to my children? Like, am I going to help my children by giving each of my children a million dollars? Some of my friends, much more than that. Is that going to help my children or is that going to hurt my children? And, and I think it's that thing we talked about the other day, the difference between being rich and wealthy. So to me, like, there are lots of things that I would turn wineskins. It's like, what kind of wineskin do I need to be able to receive wealth? <laughs> to Money. Like, is that, is that money going to keep me from working? Like Proverbs says, a man's hunger urges him on. Okay, if I'm lazy and my dad gives me a million dollars, guess what? I just He just fed lazy. That's a wineskin that father can't give you money because money's not going to help you. It's actually going to hurt you. Does that, those things make sense? So I, I think those are, these are the kind of things I think about when I think of wineskins. I don't know if I answered your question, but I, I felt really good. Thank you very much. So that's the link between echo and wine, like wineskins and echo systems. Yeah, like the I character, think that right? Okay. Yeah, I think there. Yeah, could you sure. see a connection there? Yeah. Cool. Yes. I'm, I'm Kyle. Okay, Kyle. <laughs> so I have a question, and this might stir up a bit of controversy, um, but I, I think you're the right person to ask. <laughs> um, I don't like being controversial. <laughs> What's your view on cussing? What? Cussing. Like cursing, cussing. I don't give a crap about that. <laughs> you know, what do I think about that? I, I think that you shouldn't cuss. You know, it's funny. When I got um, saved, I, I, I was, you know, obviously raised around, uh, you know, in the, in the world of automotive, mechanical world. And, and you know, the guys I hung out with, they all used the F word like, like saying darn or heck. They just use it all the time. And so it was so integrated into my thinking that it just it became like a language of its own that we didn't think about. 
And so I got saved. Lots of things fell off my life in a good way. That stayed. And I was sharing with the guy, using the F word, at my work. And he goes, Valentin, you're a Christian? You sound like a sailor. It's funny how, you know, lots of people could say stuff about you, but it's like, I don't know why, but it just it was obviously the Lord. It just stuck in my mind like, I mean, it seems pretty obvious now, but like, uh, yeah, I probably shouldn't talk like that anymore. And from that day on, especially that particular word, I, I don't think I've ever used that word in, in, in any context like that. That's So, you know, and, and I think from there on, I just became very aware, like people really care about how you sound. And the disciples sounded like Jesus. And so, you know, when Peter was uh, denied Christ three times, she said, one of the one of the servant girls says, I could tell by the way he talks. So I, I think it I think that's, you know, I think that's you shouldn't cuss. Thank you. OK. Glad you didn't ask me if I ever did it after that. <laughs> yes. Hi, Chris. Uh, I have a question concerning um, inner healing, like concerning a discernment of spirits and inner healing uh, ministry. Okay. Um, so if you could just give some examples on when you do an, are in a counseling session and you feel like um, after that you feel exhausted and just um, like drained. Yes. Um, like what were some of the things you did to not feel that way or feel better? Oh, I'm not concerned about that. Like, if I if I'm doing um, if I'm doing counseling sessions, like especially more than a couple, it's it's going to be draining. It's a little bit like saying, "What do I do about you know?" I climbed a mountain and then I I get to the top and I'm tired. I'm like, you climbed a mountain. You're supposed to be tired. <laughs> so I, I think that the challenge would be, um, you know, it, when you to develop a place that you can rest after that. But what I guess I am saying is a lot of times people counsel, they don't realize that they are literally, they're actually confronting hell in some people that actually came as a name, like it looked like, uh, let's say, pride. It looked like pride. And I think that I'm counseling pride and people are repenting, but it's actually a demon that I'm actually warned against in my office. And if I could actually see into the spirit realm, which I used to see all the time, I'm like, oh, you would actually know why you're tired if you saw what it was you were delivering somebody from. But part of the challenge is, I think sometimes counselors and just people like us, we leave an office feeling like, I had three sessions today and I'm exhausted. And I start wondering why I'm exhausted. It's because you don't know what you just did. And your spirit man's not exhausted, but your soul and body can only take so much of that. So I think the important thing is to develop rhythm. Remember I talked to you about rhythm some time ago? It's like you look at your calendar, your 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 planner, and you're like, I'm going to do three counseling sessions today. I'm going to definitely need an ice cream time. I'm going to need a break. I'm going to need to disengage with people. And, and I've said this to you many times, but you you right now, I, I don't, I'm not talking down to you. I just know that most of you are not in this kind of ministry yet. This Working with people all the time is exhausting on a level that most of you have never experienced before. You've experienced it in a day, but you don't know what it's like to string days together into months. So the idea 
So, so uh, let's see, how am I going to say this? Well, I'm just going to say, like, I have to have a break from people. Right. I don't mean I want to break. I mean, I have to have a break from people. And I, at this stage of the game, I totally have come to the place where I understand that most people are not going to understand that. But I have to have a break from people. Because pretty soon I'll be not good for anyone. So, same thing. Like, it's normal. You're in a counseling session, helping people. You, you may or may not know it, but you are sometimes fighting hell. And it's normal to be tired. I need you to get out of that office and go do something fun, get some exercise, get some sunlight, hang out with some people who don't need help. No. Hey, some of you, how many of you are called to work with the poor? Would you raise your hand? Like you actually feel God's called you to work for the poor. Okay, find some wealthy people that are your friends. I'm not joking. Like if you work with the poor, you need to proactively find wealthy people. And I'm not saying people with money. I'm saying wealthy people. What I taught you wealth is people who are healthy and have stuff that you can hang out with on your days off because you don't want the poor people to be your attitude. Yeah. That's a good word. Yes, you want to say something? Just to to add on that, um, would you also say like, let's say you are a feeler or just mm-hmm. just um, influenced by environments, um, yeah. and obviously it's my responsibility to um, handle that gifting, and yeah. I don't want to like walk around and being depressed and let it out on everyone else. Yeah. But um, there is also a growing in that gifting too, and how to handle it, and sometimes. I'm, and as I'm growing in it, I think sometimes I'm realizing, oh, I actually am feeling something that's not mine, but I might not be able to distinguish yet what it is or sometimes yeah. not what I do about it. And for example, like I've always like some, some concerts or different places where I just know, oh, I probably will feel kind of weird or out of, out of myself when yeah. I'm there. Um, so what's wisdom in growing in that? And do you just avoid some places or? Okay, um, anyone ever used any kind of like Dragon software or, you know, speak software? Like even on your iPhone? Where you talk? Have you ever noticed that if you have the radio on, that sometimes it'll pick up the radio and it'll start typing what the radio says instead of what you're saying? And if you, when you train, like I use Dragon software, when you train Dragon software, it says, turn off all outside noises because it will pick those noises up and it will print them as if it was you. And so what I'm getting at is that, and, and it goes on to say that Dragon Software, it says it really kind of eloquently. It says, computers cannot discern the difference between voices, and therefore it will acknowledge any voice and print whatever. And I'm like, that is really interesting because, and, and, and in fact, in fact, in the, soft, in the Dragon Software training thing, the other, I was reading it the other day, and it said, um, humans have the ability to discern the voices that other voices that are in the room and make it white noise and only and discern exactly what they're supposed to listen to. I was thinking, man, this is exactly what prophetic people need. Because what happens is is that we become like the computer and we're like we're picking up everything because we can. But you know, when I'm having a conversation with you, like you you've been Like on a Sunday night, it's a great example. Like I'll sit down sometimes in the front row and talk to students, and there's 25 conversations going on, and the worship team's singing. How am I having a conversation with you? Because I've proactively shut everyone else out so you and I can have a conversation. Not because I can't hear everything else, but because I choose not to. People that have a high gift of discernment, like I did, especially when I came out of my nervous breakdown in my 20s, 
You have to learn how to focus. Otherwise, that stuff will drive you crazy. So you have to like, this. it becomes white noise. It's like what I'm supposed to think about today is what my, my you know, whatever it is I'm doing. You know, if it's my kids or my husband or the class or whatever. And I let the discernment, I tell the discernment who we're going to discern. Instead of it telling me who we're going to discern. So I'm like, okay, I got Johnny in front of me. He's come for a counseling appointment. Okay, turn it on. We're going to focus on Johnny. Now I want to feel what Johnny's feeling. And pretty soon I start to train my senses. I start to train them. I'm like, on? Oh, no, off. No, no, off. (laughs) Off. And I start to learn how to let that, just let it happen in the background. It's happening. I'm just not focusing on it. Does that make sense? Cool. Yes. Hi. Hi, Chris. It actually adds perfectly on her question. Okay. So it, in the beginning of the school year, you were speaking about the story where all the prophets came into Bethel and they prophesied that the revival comes from the youth. Oh, yeah. Five different. And I, yeah. And you were really stirred up and your story really struck me. Because like, how can this really? I was like shocked a little bit. And my question would be, what is your advice or your tool? How what how? How can you train us to not prophesy from the second realm, but really from the third realm, and also adding the discernment stuff? Because I think I discern very well, but I didn't know that this is normal. And like sometimes it feels like I'm just a boo man, you know? Like when I just say what? stuff. Uh, <laughs> that's a German word. Like the. I just destroyed a good feeling. Oh, okay, got yeah. it. So how do I know? Like. <laughs> Very cute. I like it. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, uh, first of all, let me say this. I think that um, the, the gift of discernment, every prophet, prophetess, and every person who makes pro- prophecy a major part of their life should pray that the Lord would give them the gift of discerning of spirits. Because the ultimate goal, I'm, I'm saying the ultimate answer is, that I would be able to distinguish, by the way, discerning of spirits, distinguishing of spirits, same gift. Two different translations of the Bible. So I think that every single believer should have the gift of distinguishing of spirits so that when I'm listening, I'm listening through a filter. Like it's not unfiltered. It's filtered water. And that filter is the distinguishing of spirits. And the first thing I'm doing is what's the source of that spirit before I even decide to determine whether that's the, whether, what that means. And I think a lot of people, a lot of believers, if it at first sounds like a good word, they're just like, well, that must be a good word. And obviously I'm encouraging all the young people, so that's a good word. And I'm like, yeah, but what's the source of the word? Because we know that the devil will tell you good stuff if it leads to a bad outcome. Acts chapter 16, this servant girl who has a spirit of divination is following Paul. And she's saying, these are men of God. They've come to proclaim the way of life to you. Listen to them. How many know? Right word, wrong source. The devil will tell you good stuff as long as it's destructive. And then it says, Paul, greatly annoyed. So I'm saying, how did he know that? He had the gift of discerning of spirits. And he knew that was the right thing, but it was coming from the wrong spirit. So I think that when the devil can't stop us, he just tries to slow us down. He's like, all right, I'll just divide the generations. And, and, of course, your point is, how do I make sure that doesn't happen? I'd say, first of all, I would ask the Lord for the gift of discerning of spirits, distinguishing of spirits, so I know what the source is. Before I even try to judge the word, I would judge the source. 
I'm like, because if a word's coming from the enemy, it doesn't matter how good the word is, it's still the wrong source. Secondly, I would make sure that my attitudes stay well because I become a seedbed for deception when I have selfish ambition. I have flattery, like Bill talked about flattery today, I think. Uh, You know, when I have those things going on, like, you know, I come into a crowd and I want to make sure they invite me back. And by the way, you don't think that goes on? goes on with every speaker. You go someplace you want to come back to, you feel the pressure of performing there. I'm not saying I've given way to it. I have definitely felt it. So, you know, there's just different things that happen that you become a seedbed for that second heaven stuff because you have wrong motives. Um, you know, obviously, other other things that, you know, it's not a different kind of second heaven words, but when I'm angry with somebody, I, I'm bitter, I don't trust them, I have jealousy. All of those things are attitudes that are going to get me stuck in another, a different level. And, and, and I'm going to start hearing words, even if they sound good, they're coming with the wrong attitude. Does that make sense? Yes. Just one more question. Yes, so please. if I discern on someone or in a room, wow, there's a kind of rejection going on. Say, say it one more time, sorry. <laughs> I didn't hear what you said. Okay. So if I feel in another person, wow, there's a spirit of manipulation. Yeah. Would I, is this the second heaven? I mean, I would not, I would then turn it around and pray something else. But what do I discern? Well, it depends on it depends on the um, it would depend on the situation. First of all, I want to be careful. Let me tell you what I'm going to what I'm responding to, so so you have some background. When I the first three years I was at Bethel, people would discern something evil on people, and they would start rumors about that person. And and Paul said to Timothy about elders. He said, "Don't receive an accusation against an elder without two or three witnesses." You can destroy someone's reputation because of your, quote, discernment. And, you know, they had this one guy. i got to be really careful. I want to be ambiguous on purpose. But they destroyed this man in our city who was a, a prominent person in our city. Our team had that guy as a witch. I'm saying, not moving in witchcraft, as a witch, out of, out of seance, None of this anyone's actually witnessed. This was all them getting together, synergizing with their crap. Is that a bad word? I hope that's not a bad word after what I said. By the way, some cuss, some words are cuss words in some cultures and not in others. So I don't know if you should have said something about that. In our culture, crap is not a bad word. You can use it. Maybe. So, so I, I'm simply saying... We have to be careful that we don't destroy people's reputation because we, quote, discern something on them. And, and, you know, if we discern something on somebody that has never, ever had a manifestation, like, well, that person's seductive. They have a great life. They have had a great marriage. No one's ever accused them of that. I'm like, no, I think your discernment's broken. So, I mean, how does a person develop a reputation through the repetition and then prophetic people come in and destroy their reputation because they ignore the repetition and go, well, this person's got a spirit of lust on them. This person has a spirit of manipulation on them. I'm like, well, that's funny. It's totally opposite their reputation of the people they've lived with for 20 years. So I think we have to be really, really careful how we articulate what we're feeling. And most of the time, I just think, you know what? When you discern something, just use it. Use the discernment to make wise decisions. 
about people. And, um, and, and I think the gift of discernment is so important, but I think that misuse, it is the most destructive gift in the body when it's not wisely used. But without it, without the gift of discernment in bodies, wolves come in. Uh, uh, spirits come into my own life. Um, influences come into my life that shouldn't be there. I, I think it's really important for people to have discernment, but I think that has to be used with wisdom so that we don't destroy the people God loves. And by the way, you all know this, but I have discerned something evil on somebody. I don't personify that. Like, I don't think the person's evil. I think whatever that thing is needs to get off of them. And so depending on what kind of influence I have in their life, obviously, if I'm a friend, then that, that's one thing. If, I, if they're, you know, pass me by in the store, probably it's a good prayer target for me to pray privately about, Lord, that lady I saw in the store. I don't know what's going on with her, but I just pray. And I just begin to believe that, you know, you don't have to come to my servant's house to send the word. And, and I just begin to believe on another level that I don't have to touch that person for the Lord to be working in life. That makes sense? Can you please pray for us? I want that. Yes. <laughs> okay, so I'll, I'll just release the gift of discernment in the lives of all the students right now in the name of Jesus. That that Geiger counter kind of anointing would come on you. And that the Lord would also give you the gift of wisdom to know how to use that gift in Jesus' name. And you say, I receive that for myself. myself. That's a good word right there. You're next? Okay. All right. Um, I I understand that, um, that signs in and of themselves aren't confirmation of the truth of someone's message. Yeah. You know, there's, you know, false messiahs and yeah, sure, witchcraft and stuff. But at the same time, in John 14, Jesus says, if you don't believe me for, I, I came from the Father, then at least believe me because of the signs that I performed, yeah. indicating that the signs in and of themselves are confirmation. And I was wondering how those two reconciled. Well, I don't think that all, you know, it's like, here we go again, like all truth is held intention. So, you know, here we go. And I, I love the fact that those things are both true, that signs don't make your message true. And your message isn't true because you have a sign and it's not not true because you don't have a sign. Uh, on the other side of that is, I think practically, when you're, when you're teaching the truth and you can demonstrate the truth, there's no question that it gives validity. And, and I'm speaking from working in the political world. I know that when you work in the political world, like we will often get inside an office of a a politician uh, through a relationship, almost always through some relationship. Like somebody knew somebody that knew somebody that I have 30 minutes here or 15. But I know that the first thing that I ask the Lord for is a, a word of knowledge about something that I couldn't have known. Like it wouldn't be on something you can Google. It might be like something his grandmother called him or Something about one of his children that nobody would know. You know, like, like, because Google's such a big thing, they're always concerned that you Google it. So I'm like, okay, Lord, give me something. It might be a phrase. Sometimes I don't even know I said it. And I'll say something, it'll be five minutes into the mess, into the message, into the conversation, and suddenly I notice that they're paying attention. And then when we get all done, they'll go, you know, when you said such and such, you know, that's exactly what my daughter calls me. We tease each other about that. And I'm like, I didn't even know that was a word of knowledge, but it was. And for them, that sign said, listen to this man. So, you know, I I think that Jesus is just making a statement like, you know, I'm healing everybody. I'm raising the dead. I'm casting out demons everywhere I go. 
I mean, that's probably pretty profound. I don't know anyone have that kind of accuracy. So I think especially in Jesus' life when he's talking about the fact that he, he heals 100% of everyone, I think it's probably a bigger, it's a bigger statement. It's a more powerful statement in his life. Yeah, thank you. You're Makes welcome. Sense. Yes. Hey, Chris. Hi. My question is in regards to the ecosystem and finances. And so say if you're tithing, you're giving, you're living within your means, but you're still experiencing lack. Is that a belief system that's a problem? It can be. Um, you know, you know, giving is the is maybe maybe the foundation of all um, wealth comes from giving. But there's other there's lots of other um, keys to wealth besides giving. So I, I, I think let's, let me say it this way. I, I know what I'm trying to work out in my mind. If you're not generous, nothing else works in the kingdom, because it all begins with give, and it shall be given to you. So like if you're not doing that, then you know stewardship. No, no other stewardship's like. Well, how can I how can I get wealthy in God without giving? <laughs> no, that's not going to happen. That's not going to happen. But because I give, am I going to be wealthy? Am I going to receive? Maybe, but there might be other things like, you know, like in my life, I give a story. I share the story about the guy who gave me $30,000 and I avoided him. What was the problem there? I was sabotaging my own wealth. I didn't even know it till the day I ran all the way across, all the way around the sanctuary to the Hebrews bathroom. I didn't even know that I, that, that I was sabotaging my own wealth. I didn't even know that every time, every time my wealth came up, my, I got more money than I felt I was worthy of, I sabotaged money. So, you know, my family spent 20 years broke, even though we had three businesses, because I would give it all away. I would give away the the seed and the bread. So, and then I think there's there's things to learn about stewardship. Like, you know, if I, yeah, I think there's things about saving, things about investment. I think I make, you know, one of the things I'm I'm learned, I've learned and I'm learning is my I need to get in a place where my money makes money. So most people are on the other side of that. In other words, I actually use my credit. I'm giving an extreme example. I use my credit card, and my money actually costs me money. So I'm paying for my. I'm paying this bill. Let's say this bill is a hundred dollars, and I pay it with a credit card. So not only my is it cost me a hundred, but it cost me a hundred eighteen dollars because I just use an eighteen percent credit card. So now I'm like, I don't know why I can't make money. It's like you're going backwards. Instead of your money making money, your money actually costs you money. And every time you buy something on credit, and by the way, I owe a house payment, so you know I get it. But every time I buy something on credit, my money costs me money. Now, sometimes we brag about how little it costs me. Like, well, I got a 3% loan. Well, that means your money still costs you money. It, you're not getting 3% because you bought that house. You're paying 3% more. So have you ever looked at what a house costs you at the end of 30 years? Yeah, you buy a $100,000 house, and I think it's somewhere around 300000 You buy you know, a normal house, which costs, what, 250000 You just paid seven hundred fifty. You just bought a $750,000 house. Well, those are just principles like, you know, do you know that if you add about 20% to your payment, that you'll pay that house off in about 15 years and save yourself almost half of what that house would cost? What is that? It's just principles like, Get your money to work for you instead of work against you. So then if you, you know, if you can, you know, you can get credit cards where they'll give you 1% back. 
if you if you use your credit card. Well, then I pay my bill with a credit card. I get one percent back, and now my money. Now every dollar I spend, I'm actually I got actually got a dollar back. So I'm actually something that costs ten dollars actually cost me, you know, nine. Yeah, is that right? No, something that cost me a hundred dollars actually only cost me ninety nine. So I'm saying it's not a lot, but guess what? It adds up when you spend you know a hundred thousand a year or fifty thousand a year, whatever you live on. So I'm saying there are there are things that we look, like wealthy people. Wealthy people actually think different than everybody else. Because they just don't do very many things that their money doesn't make money. Because the way they make money is most wealthy people, they work really hard thinking of ways their money can actually make money. So while they're sleeping, their money's making money. The only time most of us make money is when we're awake. And the last thing I'll say is this, and I won't, I don't have time to develop, but everybody should have five streams of income. You should all have five streams of income. The idea that your job is the only place you get income, that's a bad plan. Unless it's the Lord's plan. But a great plan is that you develop streams of income. And I like to have streams of income that are opposite each other. So when this one's not good, that one's striving. When that one's not good, this one's thriving. So, you know, those are just things like, that's how wealthy people think. Everyone else thinks, I need a job. Yeah, you need a job. But what are you doing with the money you make from the job? If you take 10% of your money and give it to the Lord, as an example, and you take another 10%, and I tell all young couples, you should learn to live on 80%. Give 10% to God right away. Don't take God's money. It's a bad plan. I don't care what you believe about tithing. Old Testament, New Testament, doesn't matter. I'm telling you from a guy who's done it. Like, give 10% to God. <laughs> and then take another 10% and learn to live on 80 I mean, from the day you start working, learn, like, teach your kids, hey, live on 80%. Give 10% to God, take 10% and put it in the bank. That's your, my money makes money. That's not my Disneyland trip. That's my money makes money. And leave it in there till you learn how that money can make money. Until you know what to do with that money, don't do anything. Like just let it build in there until, you know, it might be a thousand, two, three, four. Then when you learn, like, how does my money make money? Then send it out to get some more money. Here, go get some more money. (laughs) And then just leave that alone and just let it build. Let that money build. And if the only thing you can do right now is put it in the bank, which, I mean, a bank doesn't pay anything right now. It's almost like getting nothing. But at least it's something, right? At least it's a half a percent. So at least my money's not costing money. At least my money's making something. While I'm doing nothing, my money made 80 cents at night. I don't know. It sounds stupid, but at least it feels like the principle is is working in my life. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. Thank you. You're welcome. Yes. Hey, Chris. Hi. Hi. Um, so I had a question for you earlier today um, before you went to Q&A. You are talking about um, uh, how some people are stronger with some people, and then when they, when, when they were with weaker people, they become weak. It's like they, they adjust themselves to the environment that they hang out with. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, what are some guidelines on being an effective son um, t- to remain confident even when you're around people who aren't so confident? Because my, my thing is is I don't want to build a sense of pride or ir- ignorance around you know people who aren't so confident in themselves. Who what? What's the last part? Who, I, wanna, I don't want to be... Oh, confident yeah, in themselves? Yeah, confident in themselves, yeah. Um, there's a very fine line between being confident in who God made you and being confident as a self-made man. But I'll say this, that confidence always looks like arrogance to people who are insecure so i can't be concerned about what other people think of me except for my accountability team if they 
think there's arrogance or pride, I always listen to that. And the key word is always, if anybody has ever heard that I haven't listened to my accountability team, I would like to hear it. Because I don't think that's ever happened. Not since I've been at Bethel. So, but I, I think that the, the, the key to confidence, the key to whether or not your confidence is in God or not, is, is determined by who you give credit to at the end of the day. So I was thinking about the book of Daniel, which right now has gone away. Here's my book of Daniel. Yes, I teach the Bible for a living. Of course I do. I just read it off my iPhone now. I love this verse. I probably read it to you before. This is after Nebuchadnezzar is totally has a complete mental breakdown, and he's coming back from being an animal, right? It says, at that time, this is Nebuchadnezzar writes this in, uh, in Daniel chapter 4. This is right out of Nebuchadnezzar's journal. Nebuchadnezzar writes this. This is not Daniel's recollection. This is Nebuchadnezzar's recollection. How it got in Daniel's book, I don't know. At this time, my reason returned to me, and my majesty and my splendor were restored to me for the glory of my kingdom, and my counselors and nobles began seeking me out, and I was reestablished in my sovereignty, and surpassing greatness was added to me. Remember, this is after he fell for being arrogant. Next verse, Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise, exalt, and honor the king of heaven, for all his works are true, his ways are just, and he's able to humble those who walk in pride. Now, if I just read you this one passage and didn't tell you where it's from and you weren't familiar with the Bible, and, you, and this guy says, yeah, my majesty, my splendor were restored to me for the glory of my kingdom, and I was reestablished in my sovereignty, and surpassing greatness was given to me. That does not sound humble. But here's the verse that's humble. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise, exalt, and honor the king of heaven, for all his works are true. And the point is, is Nebuchadnezzar says, I'm amazing because of him. So the question is, where is your strength coming from? It's not, I, I'm, a, I'm a worm, I'm, I'm, I'm an idiot. It's like, no, that's insulting. Where is your strength coming from? What is the source of your strength? But I'll tell you something like, having no confidence is, 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 is probably the, the second worst thing to being arrogant. Like if you if you want to change the world, you better walk into people's office with the fact that you were you were here you were supposed to be here, because apologizing for being alive is not a good plan. So, but realizing why you're alive and realizing who gave you the strength to be alive and, and realizing who put those words in your mouth and why you think every day and who gave you breath and why there's you know the sun comes out every day and who who made all that happen that it really is all about him in you and not you. That's the ultimate attitude of humility. So I, I'm, I'm, you know, I just want to stay in a place where I know where the source is, and I, it may look different to you, but I know, I know, I see some politicians right now. Some of the most arrogant things I see people say in speeches. And when I go to say something about it, I feel like the Lord says, do you, do you know their heart? Do you have any idea? Do you even, have you ever met them? Well, no. Then you actually don't have an opinion. You can say how it feels, but you have no, you have no opinion about that man's heart or that woman's heart. You don't know them, so you, you can't make those judgments. You can make a judgment about how it makes you feel, but you can't make a judgment of where the source is because you don't know the source. I'm not saying nobody knows the source. I'm saying I don't even know those people. You have to be really careful. When I can say that sounds boastful, I can't say that's coming from arrogance because I don't actually know. It feels arrogant. So I'm saying what other people think about us 
Unless it's the people that God's put in our life, I don't actually think too much about that. I actually don't think about it much at all. Maybe that's a problem. Thank you. Yes. Hi, Chris. Hi. I'm bringing you to the uh, very first day of school. We hit the floor running, and you started talking to us about how denominationalism in the church was going to change yep. the apostle. And you started talking about um, how that whole thing of even apostleship is going to change, and you started talking about family. Yeah. And you started um, teaching us that uh, we are going to be more looking for sons and daughters, yeah. fathers and mothers. And that sometimes you were listening. That's awesome. You're, I'm very passionate I'm about encouraged. this. I'm encouraged. And you were also talking that sometimes our fathers may be younger than us. Yes. And our mothers. Yeah. And it has nothing to do with age. It has more to do with experience and the giftings. Yeah. And going back home with something that you really ignited in my heart, I'm asking you, what can we do practically in our churches through servanthood to start to send this message out in a way that it can be received in the churches that are really denominated? You know, um, Bill, were you here on Sunday? I know that you guys uh, rotate different messages. Did you get to hear Bill on Sunday? It was it was a very simple but profound message. You know, it's one of those Bill messages like, yeah, I know that, but I never knew that. You know how that works. Like, he's saying things I, I have known my whole life, but he just says it. I don't know if it's his accent or... Do you ever do that? Like, I have no idea why that sounds profound because my head already knows that. Like, I quote that verse. And I was sitting in the front row and Bill was quoting some verses and, uh, and, 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 you, and people were literally going, oh, you know how they do that? Oh, oh, oh. I'm like, it was actually Jesus. He just quoted Jesus verbatim. <laughs> Sunday, he was quoting Jesus verbatim. And, and people were like, oh. and I'm like, I, I'm doing that too. And I have no idea why I'm doing that. But one thing he said, which was incredibly simple, but incredibly profound, is that if you want to be a good father, then just be a son. It was out of Isaiah 9, remember? It says, and they shall call him, speaking of Jesus, you know, um, mighty God ever, uh, I'm sorry, eternal father, wonderful counselor. I'm sorry, I have to kind of start from the beginning so I know it and get a run at it. But the point is, is that Jesus was called the everlasting father. And he said, you want to be a good father? Be a good son. Like, I think the way that we teach the world about, about family is not from fatherhood. I think we teach them from sonship. When Jesus came, even though he's the everlasting father on earth, when he was in his body, in a human body, he was known as the son of God. And isn't it interesting that, the, that God sent a son to teach us about a father when the, when the son was a father? How I many you know I'm a son? I have a dad. I mean, I have a biological dad. He's passed. But I have a biological dad, and I'm also a father, right? But it's interesting that when Jesus walked the earth, they never called him father. But the Bible called him father. So it's interesting that in order for us to get to know the father, he taught us how to be a son. I don't know. It sounds profound to me in my brain. So I'm saying, you go back and be a son. But something happens when I try to be a father to a place I'm trying to teach how to be a family. It works easier if I be a son. If it works easier if I become one of them instead of say, "Hey, I'm a father to you guys. Let me show you how this family thing works." I'm like, if I enter, if I emerge into my culture as a son, I'm a son, you know, a daughter, a son. I'm I'm one of you. Let me show you how I relate to fathers. 
I think that works no matter how old you are, as opposed to, I'm going to show you how family works. I'm a dad, your sons, okay? Be submissive. I just think it works different. And I think that's why Jesus became a son, even though he was a father. Does that make sense? Got it, Chris. Thanks. That's a good word, actually. I'm sorry, we're done. Sorry, sorry. Thank you, guys. Really good questions. Can we just bless the people who asked questions today?